0: A hundred years ago, the world's eyes were on Europe. That is no longer the case. Europe has very few jewels left in her crown. And one of those jewels, which the Parliament, the Council and the Commission and every member of state hyped up globally, was the GDPR. If the GDPR loses credibility, if we don't have the competence of our convictions, Europe will lose credibility too. When I was in industry, the big question on our side of the Atlantic, then in the United States, was, is Europe serious about this GDPR thing? It turns out Europe was not. Brussels Bites, a podcast about technology, digital society and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Dimitar Lilkov.
1: Welcome back to Brussels Bites. My name is Dimitar and together with the Martin Center, we continue to explore some of the most intricate questions related to technology and European policy. We have a great episode in store for you today, so I'm thrilled to introduce our new guest. Dr. Johnny Ryan is a senior fellow at the Irish Council of Civil Liberties and a senior fellow at the Open Markets Institute. He is focused on surveillance, data rights, competition, and privacy. Johnny's previous roles include chief policy officer at Brave and chief innovation officer at the Irish
0: Times. He is author of two books, and maybe you've seen his name in reports by the Financial Times or New York Times which caught his work on privacy and abuses of big tech companies. Dr. Johnny Ryan, it's a pleasure to have you. Dimitar, it's good to be with you.
1: Thanks for joining us. Let's kick it off and I mean, you've been engaged with pressing issues related to privacy and surveillance in various roles throughout your career. Maybe walk us through why terms like data rights or user consent
0: are really important for you and important in today's internet world. I think there's two categories of reason. The first is about individuals and their rights, and the second is about markets and how they function. And currently, digital markets do not function very well at all. But let me go to the first reason, people. It is not far-fetched today to imagine that the next time, Dimitar, you apply for your dream job, let's imagine you're going to leave the Martin Center and you want to apply for a job, that a hidden algorithm, a computer system that you're not aware of, will decide to not shortlist your CV, possibly based on something you did online in the last two years that you can't even remember. Now, that scenario, to me, is not far-fetched. Um, That is also something uh, that a fiction writer 100 years ago would have thought of as a dystopia. And while we're worried about individuals being surveilled, we're also increasingly worried about the effects that has on the wider society. Things like electoral disinformation, the collapse of legitimate, worthy media, and knock-on consequences that we cannot foresee. But there's a a parallel set of problems in the market. A few years ago, um, when I worked in my last job, I was working for the sulfur company you refer to, Brave, um, I was testifying at the US Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on antitrust. And the point I made to them then, as the GDPR was in its, its first moments as applied law, and in effect, the point I made to them was, that this European data protection law, based as it was on American ideas from the 70s, had everything in it to free the market. One reason that often isn't thought of why these privacy and data protection issues are so central is that innovative firms cannot compete and produce better things in the market when you have a winner-takes-all dynamic based on an internal data free-for-all inside these gigantic big tech firms.
1: I'm jumping in uh, immediately and playing devil's advocate here um, because you basically spun the argument around when you testified, saying that this will bring better competition. But one of the biggest talking points of these private companies is that European regulation can stifle innovation and competition. So what do you say about that? That's exactly what they would say, isn't it?
0: Look, In in the last few years, I've worked for several startups. The last company I mentioned, Brave, um, the person I was reporting to, the CEO, is the individual who invented JavaScript. So Brave had a pretty good claim to be an innovative startup. Plenty of venture capital in there. It was doing and is doing cutting edge things. The company before that was an advertising technology company, which had grown out of Dublin and was making waves internationally. So I've been on the front line of the kind of innovation that we all claim we want to support. So this this rolling thunder of data being combined within these big firms makes it impossible for upstarts to compete. And let me make that practical for you. When you sign up Let's imagine you bought an Android phone for, I don't know, a €1,000. first thing that'll happen is you will be strongly pushed to get your Google account if you don't already have one. Once you're clicking through all this stuff in your Google account, there'll be a More Options thing, which only a masochist would click near the end. If you click that, there'll be a tick box which is pre-ticked and it will say Web and App Activity. And in that text, which no one will read, it will say, we Google reserve the right to combine all of your data from any service where we can gobble it up, where, where you receive that service by virtue of having set up this one account. The second thing it says is, we will also combine all data that we get from you from other companies that happen to use things we provide. (laughs)
1: <laughs> this is this is the notorious uh, Faustian bargain, right? Where you basically
0: no, no it's not. It's it's, it's not, not no. It's it's not a bargain. Faust got something. We're not talking about getting something. I simply want to have a phone, and maybe I'd like to sign up for Google email and maybe Google Maps. In this case, Faust is is being told you must do all of these other things as well, not just your soul. Everyone else's soul too. So, um. Now, imagine what the outcome is. Uh, I have now, unbeknownst to myself, um, apparently said it's okay for Google to operate an internal data free-for-all from its business to consumer and its business to business businesses, all of them, many of which I'm not even aware of.
1: Yeah, and, and just also to jump in on that, I mean, it's not... It's important to say it's not only about Google, right? It's, it's the model of many of these companies. I remember we were in correspondence uh, back in 2018. I would never forget when I got a Facebook prompt to continue with the practical examples. I got a Facebook prompt in 2018 uh, to consent that it's fine to uh, have facial recognition on, uh, mm-hmm. on their app yeah. And I was given the choice of saying OK with a big blue OK sign and a little, you know, hidden more details uh, option. Mm. And I needed to click through a couple of other options before I can actually say that I don't really want this feature. And this was just before GDPR kicked in. So I just want to take a, a, a step back uh, and, and structure a conversation a bit more about, about GDPR now. And uh, I think a month ago, um, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties uh, had an amazing report and it had a lot of, um, a lot of prints uh, and reactions in the uh, world's um, uh, biggest media outlets. And basically you said that um, the Irish Data Protection uh, Commission is not doing it, its job when it comes to GDPR enforcement mm-hmm. and that almost all of the big tech cases, all the cases against big tech when it comes to privacy, are not really handled properly. What happened and what's what's the problem there?
0: Okay, so as you know, the GDPR has this um, country of origin principle baked in. And that means if, uh, if a headquarters is in your territory of a business that offers services across the union, then it is your territory, your member state that supervises whether that business across the EU is complying with the law. I realize I did not articulate that very well, but the upshot of it is that Google, Facebook, TikTok, Microsoft, Apple, you name it, um, they are all supervised by the Irish Data Protection Commission. Now, what that means is that if the Irish Data Protection Commission asserts its lead role in investigating those companies on any issue. Other enforcers cannot intervene until the Irish Data Protection Commission produces what's called a draft decision. And then finally, and this takes years, unfortunately, finally, the other enforcers can express a view on that draft decision. Now, some of the data that we produced showed that um, in the space of, I think I think the period was two years since the introduction of the GDPR, um, the Irish Data Protection Commission was the lead authority in 164 of these cross-border cases. So 164 issues that were important for all of Europe, not just one country. And it had produced draft decisions in only four of those 164 cases. Now that is 2%. So there's a 98% backlog. And what we said in that report is the GDPR is therefore paralyzed. Now, there was a time after the Snowden revelations when there was a consensus that we wanted to avoid calamity. We wanted to avoid a situation where um, people uh, were not being micro-profiled Um, and micro-targeted with disinformation, where they weren't being discriminated against for job opportunity or for accommodation or insurance, Um, and, and where we didn't have amplification of hate, all of the problems we now have. And the Snowden moment gave the political impetus to resist the biggest industry lobbying efforts up to that point in Brussels. And we ended up with the GDPR to protect us. And what we disclose at the beginning of this month is that the Irish Data Protection Commission has paralysed that effort. Now, let's talk about blame here. Clearly, the Irish Data Protection Commission urgently needs reform. That is obvious. But this is not just a problem of one regulator. The other regulators have not covered themselves in glory either. And on top of that, It's not just a problem of the Irish government, which is responsible here. But ultimately, the responsibility for this rests in the hands of Didier Reinders. The Commission is the party with responsibility as guardian of the treaties. And although we have an official statement from the Irish Parliament and Senate in June this year saying, we recognise there's a huge problem with how Ireland is enforcing this, for citizens across the EU. Although we have that, and although we now have concrete data showing the problem, there has not been a whisper out of DG Justice to suggest that the Commission will launch an infringement procedure against Ireland or anyone else. In fact, the only infringement procedure that I'm aware of that has even been hinted at is against Belgium. And in the Belgian situation, it may be a matter of domestic politics because the relevant minister is on the other side of a clique in the same party that Randers used to be head of. So we have a problem where we've failure on three levels. The enforcer is not doing its job and singularly clearly has failed to do its job again and again and again. The second problem is the member state, the Irish government has not done its job either, but ultimately the commission has not done its job. And let me just finish this long answer by saying, there is no point in the Commission producing legislative proposals like the Digital Markets Act, for example, if it is not going to stand over what the last Commission did. And the consequence of the GDPR losing credibility will be enormous beyond the realm of rights and data protection. The European Union, the Council, the Parliament, the Commission, the Member States all together said, we are serious about this thing the gdpr and they convinced the world now europe does not have many prestige projects left and if you allow your prestige projects to lose credibility you are fundamentally diminished as a global actor so the stakes here are much higher than anyone in brussels seems to be aware of
1: you're driving a really, really emphatic message here um, that it's not only about Ireland, and we've seen this problem in numerous other administrations uh, in Europe. We see how—I mean, I'm not going to give uh, even the, those specific examples, but I remember when the Bulgarian data protection uh, commission was was set up, they were absolutely understaffed, absolutely underfunded. We even see uh, in big member states that most of the positions taken by these experts, they're, they're not t- technicians, they don't really understand what's happening. Many of them are just bureaucrats or, or handing over legal aspects. But this is a cross-EU problem. Now the question to you is, are we going to fix it if we just throw more money at these data protection authorities? Is it only about money and expertise?
0: Uh, okay. Um... Our report went into budgets and staffing and how many tech staff um, are in each data protection authority across the European Union, down to every individual lander authority. I don't want to answer that question, though, before addressing something else. Good money thrown after bad becomes bad money. It is true in the Irish example, for example, um, that for a decade and a half, the Data Protection Commission was terribly underfunded. However, as we show in the report, the Spanish Data Protection Authority, and I'm not holding it up as a perfect example, but the Spanish Data Protection Authority has produced 10 times the number of draft decisions with a smaller budget today than the Irish Data Protection Commission has. And more than that, at the beginning of this year, I think in February, uh, we at the ICCL, Ran an expose in that was broken by the Financial Times, showing that there was an internal i c t you know tech project to reform what the Irish Data Protection Commission was using internally to run cases. They were using and still are an ancient system called Lotus Notes that's from the time of the dinosaurs to run these cases against Facebook and amazon. It's ridiculous now they had gone over budget and over time you know we're talking 5 years since first announcement and the budget had gone up two or three times to over a million euro the problem in that case was not a problem of resource the state gave them all the money they needed to fix this problem from what we could see they still hadn't solved the problem so there's so what we've been calling for among other things is an independent review of the Irish data protection commission and uh, to his credit Renders has blessed that idea, actually, in in a letter to um, Barry Andrews, an MEP. Uh, So I'm hopeful that we will see that independent review. However, the real issue here is that there is no external pressure from Brussels. I have been astonished to hear the deputy of the relevant unit in DG Just in the last few months on a public conference call say, it's early days, this is a direct quote, it is early days for enforcement of the GDPR. <laughs> now remember, there was a two-year grace period from May 2016 built in, and none of the fundamentals of, of whether you are or are not infringing the law have changed since the Data Protection Directive, 10 years on. So we're talking about old law here. If the commission is not able to stand over its own proposals. There is no point in having a commission. There is no point in negotiating any of this new generation of, of law. And what, what, what astonishes me is that the latest project, the, the Digital Markets Act, is essentially an, an effort to pick up the pieces of the failure to recognize that the GDPR's purpose limitation principle already should be regulating these market problems
1: <laughs> under data protection. Yeah here we we get we get very technical maybe this will be confusing to, to our to our users but our uh, listeners but maybe to put in some uh, in some context First, the thing you were basically saying um, is the classical back and forth between Brussels and the member states. We have the commission, which is basically saying, oh, it's not really up to us for when it comes to implementation. You have competent data protection authorities back home and DPAs are giving other different reasons. So there's a clash between the supranational level and the national level. Now. The point which which Johnny right now is, is 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 making, and this is something I was also thinking about picking up in, in this conversation, when we talk about Digital Markets Act or even the, the DCA about regulating online content, it's very interesting that the commission is in a way replicating the whole model for governance in future legislation as well. Meaning that the commission sits on top, coordinates. Le- legislates, but when it comes to enforcement or supervision or implementation, it's only ab- about member states and national administrations. D- we saw this in the draft proposal on uh, artificial intelligence. We're going to have uh, a similar uh, supranational committee run by the commission. We saw this in the DSA Act as well. So the commission is kind of replicating a model which does not really function, does it?
0: Well. Uh- I think the AI regulation is a little bit different. That, has a, that, that uses a, a different mechanism. But the, the model of having member state supervisory authorities is not necessarily a bad one. It's only a bad one if the commission doesn't do its job. The commission's job, as, and this is a job enshrined in the treaties, the commission's job is to see that member states do their job. Part of the European project is the assumption that one or other set of actors is going to mess things up. That's why it is built as it is, with safeguards. If the safeguards fail, for example, if Didier Reinders does not urgently launch an infringement procedure against Dublin, then the entire thing collapses. It doesn't matter how you design it. Take the area of competition. DG Comp has done a catastrophically poor job in its area of competence. It has waved through mergers without conducting proper analysis because it doesn't understand how data work in the market these days. It's still stuck in the past. So the issue is is not one um, where I can foresee, we give the commission authority to act and suddenly all the problems go away. DG Comp proves that is not the case. They need to get their act together. They're stuck in the past. Um, Nor is the issue one where national authorities are automatically unable to do their, their jobs either. We've seen national authorities be able to do things. If we want to solve this, what is required is very, very simple. The Commission needs to start pressuring member states that haven't implemented European law properly. It could not be simpler. And this is what has been foreseen in European law for a long time.
1: So, for you, it's it's only a question of political will and the reluctance of the commission to pick up a fight with national governments,
0: yes. correct? Yes, uh, yes, and also um, the commission, and I'm thinking of DG Just, needs to start looking at the right prize here. It, The, the incoming commission, uh, the new commission, no longer new now. <clears throat> seems to have had very little of the enthusiasm that the previous commission had for the GDPR. And so, for example, it gave the, the United Kingdom an adequacy decision without really properly thinking about what that meant. Now, for listeners who may not know what an adequacy decision is, the UK, in a public document, its explanatory memorandum, told the European commission it is worth, uh, I think it was 85 billion pounds per year to the United Kingdom to have a completely free flow of data, like a free trade area, a free flow of personal data from the EU to the UK. And in reverse, it was worth about half that figure to the other 27 states who would be part of that trade. Now, um, when I looked at global UK exports, £85 billion a year is over 13% of the UK's global exports in any field. So we're talking about serious figures here. Essentially what the UK was acknowledging is um, the Commission had the whip hand in the negotiations about data. The UK needed this adequacy decision to be able, I would suggest, to continue its data services industry. Without an adequacy decision, that industry would be jeopardized and it could no longer freely offer digital services, perhaps on behalf of US firms, into the EU. And what did the Commission do? Despite all of the evidence that the UK is not an appropriate place to receive European personal data, and there is plenty of that evidence, the Commission not only said, we think they should have this personal data, but it then put pressure on the European Parliament and the European Data Protection Board to wave that through. Now, what that told me at that time was that this commission does not care about the regulation of data. It needs to start caring, even if only to fix the digital market. But if we're going to have a a chance at avoiding dystopia, it really does need to care. Let me talk about dystopia for a moment because I've been very focused on innovation and the market. I used to work for a publisher, The Irish Times, and after that, a little bit after that, I worked for an advertising technology firm. It was only when I was working inside the online advertising industry that I finally understood that every single thing, and that's not an understatement, everything you do and read and watch online and where you are in the real world is being broadcast about you when you visit um, web pages or use apps. It has been broadcast about you to tens or thousands of companies. Now, the idea is that that allows these companies who receive the data to decide whether they want to show ads to you. So it sounds like a good idea.
1: Here, basically you're touching upon the model of real-time bidding, right? The, yes. the notorious model of of constant bids and constant auctioning for your eyeballs attention, correct?
0: Yes. So so when you arrive on a web page, there are blank rectangles where ads may appear. In the space of a blink of an eye, the editorial stuff you want to read, whatever the journalist wrote, appears or the app loads. But there's a split second, and Dimitar, you'll, you'll notice this sometimes. There's a split second before the ad appears. In that split second, a large number of companies are being asked, do you want to bid on the opportunity to show this person, ABC2341, maybe is how they know you, Dimitar. Do you want to show this person your ad? Based on what we know about them, this is a, you know, a fairly prosperous person interested in policy who's standing in this part of Brussels. And maybe based on our, our, our ID code on that person, you can combine what you're learning about him now with the profile you've built about them for the last few years or months. And so the companies that receive that information can decide how much they want to bid for the opportunity to show you their ad, or maybe they don't want to bid at all. And the person who places the winning bid, I just punched my microphone by mistake there. The person who wants to to show you the ad most places the winning bid and the ad is shown. Now, what that means is there is a broadcast about what we're all watching, reading, and listening to, and where we physically are. And those information are linkable over time to build a long-term profile of us. And there is inside the industry, and I'm quoting, no technical means to control what happens to those data. So when you go onto a website and click yes or no or whatever, that's immaterial. That's just spam. It covers this underlying data breach with a veneer of legality. So when I talk about Google, Facebook, Amazon, I refer there to a market problem where they are allowed and have been allowed to run an internal data free-for-all. But when I'm talking about online advertising with thousands of companies throwing data about you, Dimitar, and your online behavior back and forth, that's an external data free-for-all. And it also creates market problems, but much more importantly it allows profiles of us to be built and in litigation we are running actually in hamburg against the industry on this point one of the pieces of evidence is an industry document a set of rules for what can and should be in profiles about any of us based on these data and here are some of the tags does this person have stds <laughs> do they have cancer Incontinence, infertility. Do their child uh, children have special needs? Um, do they vote green, conservative, liberal? How much money in their bank account? Payday and emergency loans, bankruptcy, uh, substance abuse. The whole.
1: And when you and when you combine and cross-reference all these data points, I've been through some very interesting, uh, even psychological research on likes in, in the past and. Basically, you can, you can make a profile and they know you better than your spouse. That's, that's, that's the bottom line. And they know not only what to advertise, they even know how to nudge your behavior, basically. Right.
0: So imagine now that you are an MEP and you're running for re-election. <laughs> and you're worried about foreign money flowing into your member state and pushing people in, in a direction that is against your direction. It is, it is very, very, very likely that what we are talking about here, this broadcast about what everyone's doing online and the profiles that are then built about them, I think it is very likely that in the next elections, that will be a huge scandal, domestic or national. And in fact, in the Polish election in 2019, um, there was such an issue. And we produced evidence at ICCL against a Polish data broker company, which works in the online advertising industry. And that Polish firm had built profiles of 1.4 million Poles who either were gay or transsexual or something in that spectrum. LGBTQ plus was how they put it. So a broad spectrum and people who are sympathetic to that spectrum of society. And they built profiles about those people to target them with political messages. Now, that particular campaign was attempting to support candidates who were also sympathetic to LGBTQ plus issues. But it could just as easily have been the other way too. And I'll tell you something shocking about that that campaign. It was funded by the European Commission. Now... (laughs) Think about that. Our legislators domestically, our supervisory authorities domestically, and then the the guarantor of the treaties in Brussels over them, none of them get it. None of them understand what data are about and what they can do. They haven't grasped the consequence and value of data in the market, and they haven't grasped the rights and democratic sustainability issues that arise from data misuse.
1: Final, extremely important question, Johnny. Who gets it then? Because if the European Commission doesn't get it and, and we are led to believe that you know GDPR and all the, all the efforts coming from Brussels were, were the golden standard, they were the leading effort, the US apparently doesn't get it. The Chinese, by far, don't get it. Private companies want to be run by self-regulation or uh, very low standards. Who who does it? Who gets it? And where do we go from here? Final question to you.
0: First, where we go from here is to get the basics right. The principles of the GDPR are unchanged from the old data protection directive. And those ideas actually are derived from ideas from the 1970s. They are very, very simple principles. If they were enforced, these problems would be remedied. So the people who get it are the people who are willing to enforce Article 5 of the GDPR. And that article sets out the fundamental principles of data protection. Now we're seeing an emerging consensus in a group of enforcers that understand that competition law and data protection law and their enforcement can be uh, mutually reinforcing. And I'm going to say something that might surprise you. I think the US, I agree with a colleague of mine, Barry Lynn at the Open Markets Institute in the United States. He said this a few years ago. I think the US is going to pass the EU by The EU does not have the competence of its convictions. Forget courage. It simply isn't any good at the moment at enforcing its own law. There's nothing wrong with the principles of the law. They need to be enforced. What we're seeing in the United States is a change at the FTC. We're seeing a change at the Department of Justice, and we're seeing active state attorneys general, and they are all starting to move in the same direction. I know from when, as part of my job, I lobbied not only in Brussels for better privacy and data protection, but also in the United States. I remember that bipartisan feeling of angst. It's one of the few things that Yank lawmakers agree on. And that is that big tech in certain respects is a problem. And you can get any American lawmaker to accept the principle That the individual person, they would call them a consumer, let's call them person because we're in Europe, that the individual human being should have the freedom to decide which part of these big companies to reward with their data. Every American lawmaker agrees with that idea. And it is time, I think, for an internal rethink inside the EPP about what Allowing this ongoing cascade of monopolies has done to the market, and how enforcing the purpose limitation principle in the GDPR can fix the market.
1: Dr. Johnny Ryan, ending with a glimmer of hope that maybe young policymakers um, and across all, the Atlantic, across the Atlantic, actually get it, and there's actually a way to avoid dystopia. Johnny, thank you very much for this conversation. I was looking forward to it for a very long time. So thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you, Dimitar. And thanks, Chris.
1: Dear listeners, thanks so much for, for tuning in. This is Brussels Bites. Send us your feedback. Give us comments. We had a very interesting discussion with Dr. Johnny Ryan. Stay tuned for next episode of Brussels Bites.
0: That was today's episode of Brussels Bites. Follow us on Soundcloud for more.